Turn in your Bibles, please, this morning to the book of Jude, the book right before Revelations. Little bitty, it doesn't have but one chapter. Jude, you know, was a brother of Jesus in James. He has a lot to say, though, in this little bitty book. You know, we've been studying about living in this kingdom of heaven down here, the kingdom of God that Jesus talks about. That is that existence that we have after we're Christians by letting God rule over our lives and how to live in that relationship once we're born again we become Christians. We find ourselves living in a world that belongs to Satan and he has so many people that belong to him also that he's even created systems in this world that we have to deal with that argue against the existence of a God. Probably one of the best jobs I think Satan's ever done is to convince 70%, they say, of the population of the United States that he doesn't even exist. That's pretty cool for him, not for us. And not for those who have no fear of the Lord because of Satan's existence. If you remember last week in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 12, we saw that John said as he looked into heaven, here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Here they are. And with patience, they got there. So you see, Jesus is telling us here today that if you live in this world and you belong to me, you're going to have to deal with the trouble of this world with a great deal of patience. He said we'll have tribulation in this world, but take cheer. I have overcome the world. And I'd like to show you something about that concerns that. I looked up the term saved or saving in the scriptures last week, early in the week, when I didn't have a topic for this week. Thinking about the last several weeks and what we'd been discussing. I found out that the word saved is used in the Old Testament 40 times. It's used in the New Testament 56 times. And to show you how times change and how we, as old creatures, and not sometimes taking advantage of our new man, we have changed the meanings of some of these terms. Not one time in the scriptures that I found, maybe one time might be questionable, that the word saved was used for salvation. That's what we call it today. We call it being saved. 
But in the Bible, the real definition of that term is being saved from trouble and from suffering, from persecution, for the contradiction of sinners, other people saying, you don't know what you're talking about when you talk about God. There's no such thing. And the chastening of God. The Israelites couldn't do it. As they walked across the desert, they couldn't do God's commandments. They didn't have the patience. Most of them didn't have the patience to wait on what he had promised them. The thing is that I think from that and the reason that I felt like I need to put it in this situation right here is that I don't think we realize for the most part when we talk about our troubles how much our troubles would be if we weren't saved. I think we're today saved from so many of the troubles and persecutions and problems that the unsaved around us have that we're, don't, we're, not, we're, we're not controlled by, we're not affected by those things simply because we're a child of God. And that's the term and the way it's used in Scripture. Not that we are saved from hell necessarily, even though we are, but that we're saved from all these other things that hit us in our life here on this earth. I still get funny looks when I say that nowhere in the Bible does it say that Satan lives in hell. I was always brought up to believe that he was the head of hell, but he's not. When he was kicked out of heaven, he landed on earth, and he's been here ever since. At the end of time, he'll be thrown into the lake of fire, into hell. But right now, he's here on this earth. As it says in those Johns, those little Johns in the back of the book, going about the earth like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's just looking for us, looking for something that he can do to us to make God look bad. Because you see, he wanted to be God. And God threw him out of heaven because of it. And he pulled a third of the angels with him because of that. So many times now, we see that preachers and teachers and church literature are using words to make points that God never used those words to make that point. They've got slogans and catchphrases. And in order to try to give a message with brevity, like on a bumper sticker, three words or four words or something like that, to get an idea across, they get little catchy things that they use, but in the process of trying to get the message across, they mess up the message. And we wind up believing something different than what the Bible started out talking about to start with. You know, we were talking this morning about it's the easiest thing in the world to become a Christian. It doesn't cost you a nickel. The hard part comes after you're a Christian and trying to live like Christ wanted us to live. That's the work. That's the struggle. 
Paul said, I have kept the faith. Why would Paul, probably the, one of the strongest, most informed Christians in our Bible that wrote our Bible, why would he use that statement, I have kept the faith at the end of his life? When he was talking about he was going to die, he said, I have run the race, I finished my course, and I'm looking forward to heaven. I have kept the faith. He used the term kept the faith. But what he's saying is, I have kept my faith. Why would he say that? If it did not require a certain amount of effort just to be a Christian. And then comes this question. If you're floating through life as a Christian and everything is grand and wonderful and holy, I wonder if we're doing what God wants us to do because it takes effort to create work that God can reward us for. In Jude, chapter one, only chapter, chapter 1, verse 3, Jude says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith, which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. That expression there, earnestly contend, means to earnestly struggle for. He's talking to Christians. And he's insinuating that if we're going to be what God wants us to be, we're going to have to struggle for it. The thing that I got out of that is, and the, th the idea that, that came to my mind in reading that, is, you know, you can't keep somebody else's faith, no matter how hard you try. And you can pray from now on. And praying for other people depends on their will, their choices. And if they don't make the choices, well, then you can't honestly be responsible for somebody else's faith. You can only be responsible for your own. So like Paul, the point that he was trying to make, I have kept my faith. And it just seems like there's a question there. What about you? In Jude 24, over on the next page in my Bible, it says, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. 
to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Who is he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling. That could mean stumbling or falling out, I guess. Falling down, maybe. And to present you faultless. There's two things that Jude is bringing up there that Jesus is able to do. He's able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before his Father and our God. He's able to do that. So if you find yourself maybe in a a time of weakness, a time when you might pray for strength, a time when you might pray or have the idea that maybe things are not going so well with me, I need to pray myself up. You can pray for that, that God will keep you from falling, keep you from stumbling, and to present you faultless before his Father God. Now, in a personal level then, what does that mean to us? What effect could that have on us living as born-again believers in a world controlled by Satan with all the bad influences pointed to us in every direction? Turn, if you will, please, to the 14th chapter of Romans. Romans is one of my favorite books. And the 14th chapter is one of my favorite chapters because it it hits us as children of Jesus Christ about our problem with laying low our brothers and sisters and those who are not our brothers and sisters, anybody. We have a tendency to critique everybody, to want to criticize other people and what they may or may not do. And it says in Romans chapter 14 and verse 13, Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. Now the issue that he's dealing with here is our different attitudes about what sin is. And folks have got all kind of ideas about sin. I would say that if we had an honest survey in this room, that everybody would be a little bit different in what their attitude is about sin. So that's the reason that I have a, a problem. I think that we all ought to use what God calls sin and leave these other things alone. Because we put things on other people that God doesn't put on. You know, we started this series of sermons out about Cahaba Valley down here, one of our sister churches, and their business meeting minutes from 1848 to 1853. And how every business meeting, they were kicking people out of the church. Every single business meeting I have the notes for from 48 to 53, they either 
either discuss kicking somebody out of the church or kick somebody out of the church for things like not living like a Christian should. Now, what is that? Drinking a beer. Dancing. Saying a cuss word in public. Those are the things that they call sins. Those things are nowhere in the book. And we have a tendency sometimes to use a list of our own private sins per our estimation and how others don't live up to those, those ideas. For I know, verse 14, and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him that esteemeth it anything to be unclean, to him it's unclean. So the problem is that if you believe something is sin, for you it's sin. And that's the reason we get off in all these rabbit trails about who's living right and who shouldn't, who's not living right, which is something that's none of our business to start with about other people living right or not living right. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably, destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. Now here's the thing, it starts out in the first part of this, for, for them that are weak, you're to receive them. As long as you know they are Christians, as they have been born again and baptized, we're supposed to receive those people. We don't. There's all kind of warfare among churches and denominations and every group of people. But it says in the 14th chapter of Romans, if I know you're a Christian, then I got to accept you for whatever you are. If you're doing something that I think might, might not be what God would approve of, I've got to leave that to God. I can, I can pray for you and say, Lord, change that person and, and, and keep them from doing this thing. I think it's going to hurt their ministry. But as far as pointing a finger at you or scolding you, I can't do it. Not on the basis for the word. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. Here's the thing. It talks about in the 12th chapter of, of, of Hebrews how that every time we get out of the way, there's always somebody looking. We can't pitch a temper tantrum. Because there's somebody that's looking to you simply because maybe they've seen your church, your, 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 your car or your truck in front of church on Sunday. And they expect you to be living differently because of that. And when you don't meet up, they come crashing down. They're not as strong as you are. So we've got to be careful. Other people are watching us all the time. And that should be good, I think. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. In my mind, what this is saying is this. Maybe there's a struggling Christian that you know that looks up to you. 
and you do something that is not right, and it causes them to fumble and fall on their way to Jesus Christ. God's got a special uh, idea about people that do that. You've got to be so very careful in criticizing somebody else and causing them not to be going to Jesus as fast as they were. Because, you see, here's the thing, and this is something we've got to realize, every one of us. The day we got born again, we didn't know anything about the Bible. You can't understand the Bible until you're born again and got the Holy Spirit living within you. So everyone has got to learn, and everybody's got to grow, and everybody's going to grow differently. We've seen that. So everybody is not at the same level. So I can't say something critiquing you because you're not at the level I am, and you can't say something about me because I'm not at the level that you are, because we all grow differently. So I encourage you, study your scriptures. Know what God calls sin and agree with that. But be very careful. There's one verse in here that I remembered back in the days when so many people smoked and so many people in the church always ate up everybody that smoked. And it says that God was on the side of the person that was doing the smoking. <laughs> and the person that was getting on him about it thought he was doing God a favor by telling him you don't need to do that. It shows us sometimes how hard some of this our, our lives is to live in front of other people. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 3, it says, Offend no one in anything, lest the ministry be blamed. That's what I'm talking about. Because if you, a church member, let's say, do something that's not good, then the people that see you do it blame everybody down to church. I mean, if you don't believe that, how many times have you heard people talk about hypocrites down to church? And they do that. They blame your whole church. People may not know what Jesus calls bad, or they may not care either way. The responsibility to judge those people or critique those people belongs to God. It doesn't belong to us. So it says here, and things, let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace, doesn't stir up anything, and things wherewith one may edify another. We might build up each other instead of tearing each other down. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 21, he says the reason, Paul says with his letter to the church at Philippi, the reason these people are doing that, causing all this trouble, is because they seek their own not the things which are Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 10, if you remember in the thing about Peter trying to live a pure life and the sheep came down from heaven, he saw in a vision and all kind of animals were on the sheep and God told him, uh, rise Peter, get up and kill something and eat it. He said, oh Lord, I can't do that. There's some unclean animals on that sheep. And God told him, don't you call unclean 
what I've cleaned up. So we need to be careful. God has purposes that we don't know about. That's something that's been, this trouble made all the, you know, so many people come to you and say, I wonder why. Why? I'm just wanting to know why. Well, God's not real good about telling us why a lot of times. He brings about something, but he doesn't tell us why. And we ask why, and we don't get an answer. Sometimes maybe we understand later on. But God has things he's going to do, and he's going to do it in spite of us. Look at Second Peter chapter 2. Way back in the back. Second Peter. He's talking about some of these people in the church that are causing problems that are not doing like he just gives us instruction to do. And he says in verse 19, chapter 2 of Peter, verse 19, while they promised them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same as he brought in bondage. Sin is progressive. It gets bigger. You think, I'm just going to do a little bit, and then you look around and you've done way more than you thought because it has a habit of pulling you in and making you sin more than you planned to sin. For if after they are escaped, if if for if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, just what we started out with, we're saved from all these pollutions by Jesus. They are again entangled therein, or they get involved in that sin again. And overcome. It gets the best of it. The latter end is worse for, with them than the beginning was. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. Turn from the holy commandment. That word is defined revert or turn back again. So it says, that once they've experienced it, the goodness of God, for them to turn away from that, the worst, and get tangled up in sin again when they have the power given to them not to sin, then the end is worse than the beginning was. In Second Timothy, Chapter 3, verse 5. It's talking about those people we've been talking about that stir up trouble. It says in verse 1 of chapter 3, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. 
This is the problem. Jesus told Timothy. Told Paul and Paul told Timothy. Having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof from such turn away. That is the, the definition of the church I think so many times today. They don't talk about the Holy Spirit. That's the power. Churches don't have as much power as they once had because they don't talk about the Holy Spirit. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They, don't look, they have the Holy Spirit if they're born again, but they don't use it. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women, laden with sins, led away with diverse lust. The people that do this, it says, are ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. So that is God's description of those people and the situation they're in from a heavenly basis. Looking at this thing spiritually. Not the way you see them, but the way I see them, God says. It's in my word. They change. They evolve. But they never quite get it. And we look at that situation from our standpoint and say, but wait a minute. They go to church every Sunday. So what I've said before, and I'll repeat, when you look at people, look for Jesus. Don't look for sins. Don't look for what's wrong with them. Look for Jesus. Look for what's right with them. Because if Jesus is in them in the form of the Holy Spirit or leading the Holy Spirit that's in them, directing the Holy Spirit to direct that person to live the life that God wants them to live, he'll let you know. He'll let you know I'm here. That person will do something that in your mind comes up this idea. They probably wouldn't have done that if it wasn't for Jesus telling them to do it. That's what we look for. We have a tendency, like I say, to look for the bad thing. But all of us. I mean, it's just a personal... Right here, I was saved and born again and baptized at 10. And I did things after that that God let me... I, I finally, God finally told me, you're not chewing any more tobacco. And he stopped me and I quit. There's nothing in my book about chewing tobacco, use of tobacco of any kind. It's not there. But God, like I said, we don't always know his purposes. For me, it wasn't for me to do. And I got the point really quick. I've heard people talking about quitting nicotine and they talk about how much trouble they have. I didn't have any trouble at all because he told me to do it. And I assumed from that that if he told me to do it, he'd let me do it without having, giving me any trouble. And he did. And for three days, I thought this is the easiest thing I've ever seen in my life. To that fourth night, I had the awfulest nightmares anybody ever seen in your life because I quit nicotine and caffeine and all them things I was consuming at one time. And a doctor told me later, said, man, you can't believe what it did to your brain. <laughs> but what I'm saying is this. We are all allowed to live as Christians 
and do different things that God would not approve of until it comes to the place that he says it's time. Now's the time for you to quit this. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you have patience with us and mercy on us. I thank you, Lord, for leading us to be like your Son, our brother and Savior, Jesus Christ, the firstborn of the church. Help us that we might understand and be truly what you want us to be. And not be confused about everything that comes down the road. You say that. That we not be swept away by every wind of doctrine, but know exactly what you want us to be. Lord, I thank you for this group of people right here. Their power of prayer indicates their level of esteem they have with you. And I thank you for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.